You're listening to audio from the St. Luke Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more or donate to this ministry, please check out our website at stlukelex.com. Well, good morning. How are we doing? You know, I started up here on this stage with a whole crowd of people around me, and now they've all left. <laughs> Start to wonder, is they smell a little or what's up? <laughs> Just watched them all trail away. Well, I am glad that you are here with me, that you woke up, that you got dressed, and that you came here to worship, and that, quite frankly, hearing you all laugh together, that, that really blesses me. And so I would like to invite you all to join me with that similar energy as we read the Lord's Word. Let's get started. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Great work. I really think that the end of this passage ought to come with a trigger warning. Because first, you get punched in the face with anger. Just the words, your enemy, what happens in your mind? You see them, they're there, hanging out in your noggin, probably waving back at you with a cheeky grin. And then suddenly all of our blood pressures go up. And then it says, love, those duds, they can take a hike right on off and then just insert whatever your go-to threat is. And then no sooner does all of that run into your head before you get drop kicked in the stomach with shame as you go, I did it again. 
That was not me loving my enemies well. So sorry, God, sorry, I'll do better next time. And so you might drop your shoulders a little bit and then stand up with resolve. You're gonna do it better to love those stupid schmucks. And then, then the segment really seals the deal. I don't know if you've ever watched Top Chef or some other cooking show, but they'll sit around and they'll be like, the acid just really brought it together. The whole dish just really came through. Well, this is the point when you get that lovely kick in the shins and it really brings it all together with the terrible phrase, be perfect. Great advice, Jesus. I'll get right on that considering how well I am doing so far. And for those of you who are cringing at the crassness of what I'm saying, don't worry. Don't worry. We eventually all get it together and we do go back through and read it one more time a little more poetically while saying, I will love my neighbors as we set off into the blissful sunset of spiritual formation. What we don't often realize, though, is that as we set off into this blissful sunset, we're taking a broken oar and a leaky boat. Because we're saying things like, well, if you knew her, you'd probably hate her too. But I'm doing my best. And well, God love them. I'm working hard at it, but it ain't easy. You see, the core of this is striving, which is an interesting word. On one hand, to strive means to devote serious energy or effort. And as a devotion, we can see this as, as an offering, a dedication of what we have available to this. So that may, might be the offering of yourself, the offering of your time, the offering of your mind and thoughts, the offering of your money to pursue something. And that sounds pretty nice. But on the other hand, take a look at these synonyms we have for the word strive. They're horrible. Other than the word endeavor, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Because nothing says happiness like the words drudge, slog, and toil. In other words, striving can be a double-edged sword of devotion or of strain. And a lot of times when we read through the Sermon on the Mount and we go through all the passages, well, we tend to read it with the strain image of don't do this, don't do that, do not, do not, do not. And it can get to be a little bit like that whack-a-mole game. And guess who's the mole? It's you. Because it's that list of things that bang away at us. And, and we'd begin to rather not pop up our head at all because, you know, why try? Or you get really good at whacking yourself over the head over and over and you get to watch all of your perfection points go up and you get really pumped that maybe you're going to get a prize in the end. You see, what happens is this is a contracting way to read this text. It squeezes us and squishes us and it can begin to feel like we can't breathe and it sets us on that path of struggling in our striving. Now, there's no cause for concern. We're not going to stay this pessimistic because the reality is we are in all different stages of reading this same passage. It's a bit like going to the eye doctor. If you're like me, you have terrible vision. And so they sit you down and they're like, all right, read to me the lowest letters that, that you can make out. And I'm like, I got nothing. Is there even a sign down there? Like, 
And so then they bring that contraption in front of your eyes, the big metal masquerade ball mask, and then they begin to switch the lenses. Is one better or two, three or four? And they take you through it until slowly the doctor calibrates your vision and what was a blurry mess comes clearly into view. And this new view that we're gaining comes with Jesus teaching us the high ethics of the kingdom. And I want you all to understand that this is very different than the high behavior of the kingdom. That's not what he's teaching. It's the high ethics. And sure, they both get at how we act. But looking at ethics first points us to the principles that shape why we act that then informs how we act. And we all have these things that we believe. Maybe you go out and you do something, you're like, I don't know why I did it, I just did. Well, you have an operating system that maybe you don't take the time to pay attention to. And it's filled with your values and beliefs that shape how you act. And so if we skip this part of understanding God's principles, well, we can have all sorts of fun just inserting whatever reason we want to have into why we do what we do. And so you might be trying hard because it's ingrained in you to be a perfectionist, and that might very well be you managing your own anxiety. Or maybe you have a fear of failure, and so you're out there trying to manage your self-image. And that's why this passage today can be so very triggering. It's because we show up with all of these beliefs and values, and it ends with us slogging ourselves to do better. And we're going to take a look at a pretty easy example from our passage today so that we can see the two sides of the coin for striving. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear, swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black." Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. If we read that segment and go for behavior first, then we find ourselves saying things like, well, now that I've read that scripture, I swear I will never make an oath again. I'm done. It just said it was evil. I can't do that. Because when we stay there, what we do, the drudge of our striving, it creates a rule that oaths are bad, and yet we've not even understood the principle at all. And that doesn't reform us. It bangs away at us for doing evil things like breaking that rule of making an oath. So let's get to the principle instead. As kingdom people, if we are reliable in our words, guess what happens? Oaths are obsolete. They're no longer necessary. They are not needed because yes means yes and no means no. Kingdom ethics, what it does, when we understand, understand the principles, the kingdom ethics, it creates kingdom people who are free to trust. You're free to trust yourself. You are free to trust others because we are reliable and we are true. We aren't worthy because we followed a rule to stop making oaths. We are worthy because God redeemed us and shaped our hearts. 
And as our hearts were shaped, we became true and reliable. And as we became true and reliable, the words that come out of our mouth are true and good. See how that happens? The principle shapes the heart, which shapes the behavior. So if you're the type of person who needs an oath in order to be seen as reliable, well, what that means is that there is evil lurking in your life. It is shaping you into an unreliable person as your words flow from your mouth with selfish motivations. Now, we may make oaths as we sign our mortgage at the bank. We may stand before a court and testify because we are still in this world. But since we aren't of this world, a joy arrives in our hearts and it's filled with the Holy Spirit and a new purpose as God's reliable, trustworthy children who mean what they say and say what they mean. Do y'all see how that happens? Before, as I said, it was contracting, it was squeezing and it was squishing us. And what we're realizing is that it's actually expansive. Instead of don't do that, it's bad and so are you if you do it, Jesus is saying, come closer and I'll tell you what it really means to love. Now, Brian has shared with us throughout this series that we need to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. So, if you have been playing whack-a-mole really well and you think you're about ready to turn in those perfection points, I recommend you just go ahead and lay it at the cross now. Because what we're aiming to do is to pull these things out, taking them out and laying them down before the Lord instead of trying to pound them out of ourselves. And we'll bring it into the light and surrender it to God. And so now that you've maybe realized you had a mallet or if you're brave enough, brave enough, potentially set it down, we are going to read our text again today. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we tend to focus on all the times that Jesus says you, because he says it a lot. Thirteen times in just this passage, he says the word you. And so as we hear you and your and you and you and you, well, you get to be center stage and spotlighted in your mind's eye. And you might very well begin to hear, you need to love more, you need to pray more, you need to suck it up, you must be perfect. Anyone else ready to get that mallet back out? Only instead of focusing on the you, what I'd like to encourage you to do is we're going to zoom in and don't switch the slide just yet. We're going to zoom in a little closer and I want y'all to see how many times is the father mentioned in this passage, including the references to he and his. All right, we'll give them the cheat sheet. Y'all can flip this slide. It's six, and I was a little tricky because a couple of them are implied. But it's definitely less, and so it's a little more difficult to locate. What I want you to do now, though, is find how many times is the word father mentioned. I hear you saying it. 
Two. Two. And one of them, it says heavenly father. I want y'all to look at the word before that, before father. What does it say? Your. So whose father is this? (coughs) It's yours. He is your father. And so when we read this, we often forget that there is someone else in this verse and in this relationship. You are not alone and condemned. You are adopted and called. Your father doesn't send you out to do something you can't do. Instead, he does it first, just like a parent. We go in there and we show them how to do it. The father shows us and we see it through the grace and redemption and we hear it in the son and we heard it in our children's message this morning. The son prays, forgive them, father. They know not what they do. And then as if you all, that isn't enough. Then God sends the Spirit to dwell with you. You are with the Spirit right now, and the Spirit is with you right now, and you are empowered to love others the same way that the Father first loved us. So Jesus, he doesn't want us to be like everyone else. He doesn't want us to just love those who love us, because then we're no different from the world. Our Father is different, and so we are to be different too. Take a look at this one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody slaps me, they're probably not my friend. I mean, I think that's pretty fair to say there. And without boring you on the mechanics of Greek, do not resist the evil one can be best understood as not resisting an evil deed has occurred. And so the the cliff notes to that is there's no need to retaliate. You do not need to retaliate. And in our striving to be good, what oftentimes happens is we read this and we're like, okay, so I'm supposed to stand by and take abuse? Is that what makes me good? Well, no, that's not what this means. We're not meant to just sit by and be sitting ducks for others. But what it does mean is that if an evil person meets you, you do not turn and become an evil person to meet them in return. If an evil deed has occurred to you, you do not turn and offer an evil deed back. Forget me, I just lost my place. Here we are. I'm back. So... (laughs) hone it back in. So it doesn't mean that we make ourselves sitting ducks. And in this of not retaliating on others, well, our hearts are transformed. And then we no longer need that retaliation because kingdom ethics, remember the principles that shape us, well, they show us that God offers us grace, justice, and judgment in his timing. Well, this sounds well and good, right? We love those words, grace, justice, judgment. But if you haven't really felt them, if you don't really know them, come and talk to me. Because this transformation, it begins by realizing you have a father who loves you and adopts you. So if you don't know that yet, let's go have coffee. Let's go talk. Let's journey together. Because then as we realize that we are loved, as we realize that we are safe, that we are valued, that we are called, then we are able to surrender all those things that you wanted to hide. And you don't have to keep bopping them on the head, making it go away. There's no need because God already knows about all of them. And you're so loved that the sun rises and the rain falls for you and over you. 
regardless of whether you're good or evil, just or unjust. And that's the moment when you realize that you sit in the same seat as your enemy and that you're both loved. When that happens, there is an incredible grace of God that you experience. And you can't help but to be happy that God's reign falls on your enemies because you're likely the enemy of somebody else. At some point, me included, we have all been the ones who are just unjust. And when we woke up in the morning and stepped outside, the sun warmed our face. God's grace came to forgive us and those who hurt, who hurt us. And when we offer this over to God, we are able to bask in his love instead of our dislike for another. Now, you're likely not going to have warm feelings of love. It's probably not going to feel ooey-gooey. You're probably not going to want to go be this person's best friend. Maybe over time, if God really redeems the situation... And I'd like to encourage you that that is okay. It's okay to not be ready to go run and jump into their arms. Instead, we pray and offer the situation and the person over to God. And we offer forgiveness. So you all, this may look strange. Maybe this person has hurt you so badly that you're not safe to be in their presence. Or maybe you might say to them, oh, I forgive you. And they're like, I didn't apologize. Or maybe it's somebody that's deceased and you can't have this conversation. And yet, in your heart, that forgiveness can be offered over to help heal you and restore you. You set boundaries as needed and then wait for God's justice. Because justice may very well be the reformed heart of the person that you can't stand by God's great redeeming love. When you do this, the strangest thing will happen. Because your heart is going to one day overflow so that the Father's love, it becomes your love. And in the face of injustice at the hands of your enemy, your heart will ache and will be filled with joy at the grace you know that person might be receiving from God. You'll rejoice not because you have been vindicated and not because that person has finally gotten all of those lessons you really wish they would learn but because God loves us so much and so big that the worst situations can be redeemed. You pray not for their harm, but for the love of God to burst forth in their hearts because you know a light so strong that it's cast out even your own demons of hate. That is a joy and it breaks our own hearts. It doesn't feel great, you guys. It's heartbreaking. And it reshapes that heart of yours with a happiness that looks at your enemy and sees the love of a father. In the end, this is love's ultimate goal. It's a heart freed from the broken ethics of this world so that we can love as God loves us. And that is perfection. Not you, banging yourself over the head, saying, be perfect. The drudge of striving for behavior, well, it tells you that you're never enough. It's never enough. You'll never whack enough moles. The devotion of striving for God tells you that you are his beloved from the very beginning. And if that's not a good, a good enough of good news for you all, all of this perfection, well, it doesn't happen just like that, maybe occasionally, but for the most of us, this is a process. So if you aren't there yet, that's okay. God will calibrate your vision over time as you devote yourself to the things of God. And then one day, 
what was a blurry mess will suddenly become clear. And imagine that. Imagine if every single one of you in this room, your hearts were so transformed and you were so filled with love that it was overflowing even to your enemies. Well, a light would shine when that happens. And you would look out and you would see a city on a hill. And it would be filled with all of you people, healed, forgiven, and transformed. You would be people who go two miles instead of one, who speak with truth, who give with fullness of charity to one another, and whose hearts overflow with God's love. And the world would see it, and the world will come. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord God, we just thank you so much for your word. It pours over us and it reshapes us. It cleanses us. And it gives us reason to live and to breathe as we are shaped to be like you. So we thank you. We thank you for this time together and for your word that evolves with us over time. We thank you that you come to us and say that we are loved just as, as we are. And then you call us to us so that we can be more like you. We just lift this up, Lord, in your heavenly and holy name, Jesus. Amen.